0: your kind have named me demona and with good reason the spell that i have woven into the audio will cause you to fall under my power the beginning of the end of the human race
1: the story is told though who can say if it be true of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern day manhattan Of the animated series that told their story.
2: It is an age of darkness, superstition, and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles.
1: Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast.
3: Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com, and I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Spidey Dude Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a spectacular radio, a spectacular Spider-Man related show. Let's start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at SpideyDudeRadio and this show at FromEerie. And feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcast, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible as well as google podcasts it helps us raise our vis- visibility and like share and subscribe for more at SpideyDude dude network youtube.com slash dude network also follow us on facebook and twitter as i mentioned the twitter threads but also follow us on facebook facebook.com slash SpideyDude network as well as instagram if you like instagram instagram.com slash network with that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Beshansky.
2: Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Erie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'd like to introduce my co-host and partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello. And I am the lesser host of this thing, Greg Beshansky. And joining us, as usual, is Mr. Greg Wiseman the co-creator and supervising producer of the series and writer of the SLG and upcoming Dynamite Comics. Hi, everyone. Hey, before we dive into City of Stone, which I've been looking forward to talking about for a very long time, we've got a little bit of news to cover on two fronts. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York. Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. On the Dynamite side of things, we finally got solicitations for the second issues and covers. Almost all of them look fantastic. I especially like that Goliath versus Thalog cover.
1: Oh yeah, that looked amazing. Uh, yeah. That's a knockout.
2: I think that might be the best piece of official Thalag artwork I've ever seen. I would give it that, yeah. Some cool stuff with Angela, and I'm... Enjoying seeing Brooklyn. I mean, they're showing his eye patch now. It was kind of obscured on issue one covers a little bit, but it's nice to see that. And although we're hoping to see the entire clan, I know George put Katana and Nash on the cover. I'm hoping to see them. Other artists' interpretations of them too for upcoming covers.
1: I think the artist. Uh, my sense of things. Uh, this would have been a good question, task. Nate last episode but my sense of things is that the artists are being given quite a bit of freedom to sort of do what they think is fun for them which I'm all for you know in other words if if uh, artist A is a particular Brooklyn fan and wants to draw a really cool shot of Brooklyn more power to him and if artist B loves Lexington and wants to draw a cool Lexington then more power to uh him or her and uh Obviously, characters like Katana, Nash, uh, Cold Fire, Coldstone, Stone, um, they're more obscure. I mean, hopefully they won't be shortly, but uh, once the series gets, you know, rolling. But I understand that there's a sort of, uh, for these artists, it's like, oh, I've always wanted to draw Angela, you know, and it's hard to say I've always wanted to draw Katana if you don't have any real, you know, experience with Katana yet. Um, but, you know, I feel like they'll get there. Uh, and in the meantime, they're doing stuff that jazzes them. And I can't complain about that because the results are fantastic.
2: There. And we also <laughs> saw the, f- the first eight pages of the comic. No dialogue, but it just brought me home. I mean... It's so kinetic. I'm enjoying George Comedious' style and um, how lively it is. Some of the color. And there's in so jo- much
0: movement in all the, all of the the frames. Like nothing looks static. Everything looks like it's moving and flowing. Um, I love the style. I really am loving what what the inside looks like.
1: And for all you guys know, there is no dialogue.
0: So what did Lexington that whisper made to Nashville? Really easy.
2: <laughs> so Greg, we're, we're going to haunt you and ask Greg in that conventions for twenty years, twenty eight years now over this. What did Lexington whisper to Nashville? You'll have to wait and see. <laughs> excellent, excellent.
1: But the thing is, you'll have to wait to see if you
0: even get an answer to that question. Nice. We we've, we've, we've waited a long time. We can we can hold out.
2: A few weeks longer. We're almost there. And also we've got some NECA news. NECA is doing their 31 nights of fright, and they showed off a silhouette last night for the, 20, for the 20th anniversary of gargoyles a silhouette of Macbeth. So we have seen now as much of Macbeth as we have of Elisa Maza. They have shown Elisa a silhouette of her anyway back in March. and um, Or Women's first of all, Day. Yeah, International Women's Day, which is cool. And it's also cool to get this confirmation Macbeth as we're about to record City of Stone. That's some pretty cool timing. And before I go any further, I just want to say... We love Macbeth. We're excited to get Macbeth. He's a fantastic character, a fantastic design. It's going to make a fantastic figure. Jen, you agree with that, right?
0: I agree with it, but you know what I'm thinking.
2: Yes, and I know what you're thinking. In fact, I'm going to say it. I think some people, when it comes to waiting for Elisa, or at least more of a shot of Elisa are getting, the natives are getting a little bit restless, and I've had some conversations, I understand where it's coming from, a lot of people who I've talked to haven't collected an action figure line since the Gargoyles line of the 90s, and Kenner, that was a very different time, I mean, nowadays yeah, it does get frustrating there are more female figures now than there were way back then, especially with stuff like Marvel, but it's still a little bit of a problem that needs to be worked on, and it would be nice to see some confirmation of her, just to know that she is in development, that she's coming along nicely. But at the rate we're going, I'm expecting we'll see her sometime in uh, 2024, because I'm assuming the stuff they showed off at San Diego and then at New York Comic Con is closer to being ready. Or closer in
0: the front of the pipeline? Yes. You know, if even if they just showed me uh, just the sculpt, you know, like how they teased all the rest of them, just this isn't in production yet. This is what they're going to look like. Just show me Elisa. That's what I want. Show me.
2: I think what it is is they're going for the Gargoyles first because they're the more quote-unquote visually interesting ones. They've got the wings, the tails, etc. And Elisa might be a harder sell to someone who only barely remembers the show than, hey, cool, big monster with wings
0: well yeah I, I get that I get that but like now that they've got the attention of, of the fans now like it's not just like uh, ooh shiny it's uh, you know and then and then the T's just just show me we've seen Xanatos. we've seen steel clan we've seen Coldstone um Angela, Angela looks amazing, but you know that's an easy one because you're basically just using Demona and changing the head. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I, I want to Lisa give it to me, uh,
2: and I am right there with you.
0: I, and from and from how Twitter reacted to the Macbeth thing. Uh, I think that they're ready for Elisa,
2: too. Mm -hmm. Not that people aren't excited about Macbeth. They like Macbeth. It's uh, poor Macbeth. He doesn't deserve this. It's just a case of bad timing. Poor guy. I
0: love Macbeth. I love him. But let's count how many episodes he was in compared to how many episodes Elisa was in.
2: Yeah. And on that note, I think we've covered the news. And we can talk more about how Macbeth's life becomes a living hell.
0: And how Demona made her own life
2: a living hell. I love it. I effing love it. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. All right. We're going to dive into City of Stone. And um, this is a four-parter that had a significant impact on me personally. I'm going to save the speech for part four when we're at the end. But when I say that I've been waiting to talk about this, I've really been waiting to talk about this. So I'm... Really glad we made it here. But um, Greg, you've how did this four-parter come about? Because it's almost unprecedented. You don't see a four-parter which mostly focuses on the origins of two villains.
1: This is something that uh, Michael and Frank and I were working on um, initially as a uh, directed video, as I recall, back in the day the video videotape. <laughs> the idea was that the show in uh, season one, again, had been very successful, and obviously this was before season two came out. So one of the things that was discussed was, hey, we should do a direct-to-video of Gargoyles the way Aladdin had done uh, Return of Jafar, and then you know we could afterwards repackage it as episodes. So initially we set out to do something that would be along the lines of a three-act uh, movie, thus breakable down into three episodes um, and then um, Michael Reeves was story editing this one uh, and uh, he and again he Frank and I came up with the basic story line for it and um, and then he worked with uh, Bryn Chandler Reeves and Lydia Cimorano as his writers on it and uh, they came up with an outline that was again, Uh, a movie, but a movie that would break into three parts. Uh, and then while they were working on that, I had conversations with, um, Disney home entertainment, which back then might've been called Disney video or home video. Um, can't remember now, but in any event, and when they described how long they wanted the movie to be, um, uh, it became clear that, uh, you know, three episodes for us, if you don't count credits and you don't count, uh, you know, the main title and the previously on and that kind of thing, uh, our episodes were about 19 and a half minutes long, give or take. And so what that meant is that, you know, you just barely have an hour of material there, and they're like, that's not long enough. So um, Michael turned in the outline for all three parts. That is for the one movie, but breakable into three parts. And it became clear to me that it wasn't going to be long enough. And so I did some work on it uh, to expand on uh, what Michael, Lydia and Brynn had done uh, and expanded and flesh it out some more so that it would fit into four parts. That if we, you know, that we'd make the video and then later air that as four episodes. So that was sort of the game plan and everyone was behind that. But then when Gary got pitched the actual story, Gary Chrysler, our boss got pitched the actual story, he, um, rejected it for the home video and his argument I think was correct, which was that this isn't a story about your hero gargoyles. They are not the ones who go through change. They don't learn anything. Um, You know, they maybe get some of their beliefs reinforced and they, but this is really a story about your two villains, Macbeth and Demona. It's interesting, but it's, you know, if we're going to do a Gargoyles home video, it should be about Goliath and the Gargoyles, not about Demona and Macbeth, which I actually, you know, I mean, over the years doing what I do, you get a lot of executive interference. Some of it is positive. Some of it's negative. Frankly, a lot of it's negative but this didn't strike me as incorrect. I didn't think he was wrong. He also said he really liked the concept of the Hunter and thought that was great. And so Michael and I said, all right, let's, can we do this as this four-parter on the show um, and go off and pitch you another movie that focuses on the Hunter versus Goliath, but make it more Goliath's story. And, um, he said, yes, great. Do that. Um, and he was five of us making this a four parter, um, and using it in the show that wasn't even a fight. I mean, it was a question, you know, we had designed it to be a movie. Um, and so it's like, can we do this? And, and I think he thought about it, but not like, you know, no one agonized over it. He said, all right, yeah, you've got 52 episodes to do. This will take care of four. So go for it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, this became, you know, in essence, our first second season tentpole, we've had this tentpole discussion in earlier podcasts. So this would, you know, we had the eight episodes, the six that we had begun writing even before we got in a pickup plus two more, I uh, have the beholder and vows, um, after the pickup came and then this would be follow those as the first tent pole, the first major event that happened, uh, in our storyline. Uh, and then Michael and I started working on that Hunter story, which eventually became Hunter's moon, which again, we were going to do originally as a DVD. I'm sure we'll talk about this more way down the road, but, uh, That was, you know, what wound up happening is by that time, um, some of the enthusiasm for Gargoyles had begun to evaporate because uh, once the second season started airing, you know, we just kept getting our asses kicked by Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Um, Still not happy about that. 28 years later, but, um, uh, but it was true. And so suddenly we weren't as attractive uh, a thing for home entertainment. And so we just decided, okay, we'll take this story, which we loved, and we'll make it a three-parter, Hunter's Moon, to end the um, second season. But it gave us, in essence, by creating these tent poles of city of stone that we had you know, pretty effectively, by this time now, broken as a story and Hunter's Moon, which we hadn't finished breaking, but which we knew the basics of, it gave us sort of a beginning and end to the arc of the season between um, City of Stone and Hunter's Moon. So we had sort of these eight episodes that preceded all, and then we created sort of the arc of the season between City of Stone and Hunter's Moon. And it gave us a really effective target to reach for and go for by the end. So, in essence, the creation of City of Stone resulted in building out the arc of the entire season.
2: Fantastic. And on that note, Vows, in retrospect, was almost a perfect prelude to it, in a sense that we're seeing that Demona is the architect of her own misery, and we're going to see that in even more major ways as we get into this. And... um, well let's start with the important thing. The return of Brandon and Margot. We haven't really seen them except for one that's, cameo. That's since, the
0: important thing, I love it.
2: <laughs> since <laughs> awakening and and I I just love they turn up here as hostages. Although now I have to wonder, does Brendan work in that bank? I mean we know what Margot does and they're the only two hostages there, but well. Uh I'm, I'm not going to tell you what Brandon does Brenda does.
1: And now I've got a comic book, so I'm going to show you what Brandon does eventually.
2: Excellent. Sweet. and Okay, and then there's a bigger question, and I know fans have been asking this for a while, and again, I understand you're probably not going to go into this uh, either, but people have been wondering for a while who that terrorist is, what her cause is. I mean, she's not robbing the bank. I mean, terrorists literally are usually more politically motivated than that. But um, it, But since you're probably not going to spoil... I do enjoy how she's clearly a metaphor for Demona later on in the episode, as uh, certain new characters that we're going to discuss shortly point out.
1: Uh, Yeah, I
0: mean, that's almost stated. (laughs) I mean, it's barely, you know. I mean, yeah, (laughs) we're not talking about this terrorist.
2: (laughs) Nope.
1: Right. uh, And and then we cut to Demona. (laughs) Who are we talking about? Oh, let's cut to Demona. Oh, now
2: I know. Uh, I do Uh, I do think we should point out so, that the word terrorist violent. got censored from Toon Disney and Disney XD airings for oh, years after right. <laughs> September 11th.
0: Yeah, after 9-11, they took the word terrorist out. We were not
1: talking yeah, about I mean, this.
0: I, on the one hand, I think that's foolishness.
1: On the other hand, I also understand it. I mean, it uh, it's easy now, or at least easier now, to forget how incredibly traumatizing um a time that was for people in this country and uh and so the notion of trying to reduce reminders of that trauma I have some sympathy for even though I do think it was a a sort of nonsensical decision in in context but I I get it and certainly of, of the kinds of things that Again, big companies are prone to do to creative stuff. It it was fairly minor. It's not one that makes me, you know, pull my hair out or anything like that.
2: Yeah, I suppose it's not like taking the episode out of the rotation completely like they did with Deadly Force for a long time. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about the big introduction now, the weird sisters. And I love that we first see them as these creepy little children.
0: Very, very The Shining happening there.
2: Come play with us, Danny. Right. <laughs> um,
1: I had not seen Shining, so I know I wasn't influenced by that. Um, I definitely was uh, influenced by, again, you know, The Weird Sisters from Macbeth, the play that is Sisters with Macbeth. Um, I was influenced by the idea of the maid mother and Crown, Um Neil Gaiman had in Sandman and probably other places, uh, done quite a bit with made mother and crone. And that, uh, influenced me in the sense that I'm like, okay, let's not do exactly what Neil's doing, uh, or did. Uh, so instead of having a young girl, uh, you know, an old woman and someone in the middle, um, I'm like, okay, let's make them identical, but with different hair colors and different personalities. Um, but we will show them as little girls. We will show them as beautiful women. We will show them as old crones. We'll show them as old crones as humans and old crones as gargoyles. We will show them as beautiful women dressed as cops, as beautiful women dressed as servants. As you know, In other words, we would do made mother and crone, but not simultaneously. And the idea is that the idea was that we tried to get across, so I think it will become clearer in episodes after this one, is that what they looked like depended on who was looking at them. Um, and even if two people like Damona and Macbeth are looking at them at the same time, Damona would see them as old crones, but as gargoyle crones. And Macbeth would see them as human crones, um, even if they were both looking at them at the same time. And for, again, this becomes one of these things that visually I think it is easy to make clear on the screen, but in me describing it to human beings that I'm working with was for some reason incredibly difficult for people to get their heads around. Oh, I get it. They're all just identical. I'm like, yes, but no, we can use the same line art for each of the three because they're going to be in identical costumes and they're going to look identical, but They are colored differently, so it makes a difference. You've got to label them all. It's like, don't worry, we'll make sure we get the three hair colors in it. No, 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 because they have different personalities. It matters which one is speaking. You can't just assign the voices willy-nilly, you know. Um, And we wound up having quite a bit of problems with the Weird Sisters on a production level where, you know, Celine would be looking at Phoebe and saying, Luna, listen to me, you know. And I'd be like, okay, from now on, on every panel, every panel that they're in in the storyboard, I want you to label which one is which. Well, that's not a, yes, it is necessary because this is what we're winding up with. So it became this thing that I was surprised. It it was like, you know, the whole thing with uh, vows and the time travel thing. This became another one of these things where I am saying we've got to do it this way, and this is what will work on the screen, and people are having trouble understanding me. It was incredibly frustrating at the time, I remember. Even now, I remember that that idea, which I thought was so simple and straightforward, um, wound up just confusing the hell out of all sorts of people in on two different continents. I think we wound up pulling it all together well enough on screen, but there's still moments uh, in uh, any given episode of these, of this four parter and also down the road when the weird sisters reappear on occasion, when, you know, we'd have to say, no, but you've got the wrong, you've got the voice coming out of the wrong one. Well, what difference does it make? They're all triplets. I like, it makes a difference. <laughs> um, And in my mind, the idea was to combine the notion of the Weird Sisters with the notion of the Fates, the Furies, and the Graces. So that idea of the Triple Goddess, which goes across many mythologies, um, and usually is connected up with the Moon, though not always. Um,
3: It looks just like the Cave of the Fates back home. Hey, that's Atropos. Those are the fates.
0: Shh,
1: we
3: are not the fates. You are too.
0: Hey, you're double dipping, working two mythologies at once.
3: No, no, no. Uh, we are the Norns, Norse weavers of fate. Oh, yeah, sure, you bet. No, if you'll excuse me, we're in a hurry. Come on, Sister Fates. <laughs> I mean, Norns. I'm
0: telling you, they're double dipping.
1: But specifically the Fates, the Furies, and the Graces. That is, Phoebe is, uh, in essence, the the avatar of the Graces. So she is kinder and gentler and is sort of the epitome of Grace and the epitome of trying to help people. Um, Celine is the avatar of the Furies, so she's all about vengeance. She's colder, she's harsher than Phoebe is. And then Luna is the avatar of the Fates, and she's more of... The mystic one, um, her pronouncements tend to be a little airier and a little stranger and, and uh, pointed, and yet uh, uh, ambiguous, right? And of course, what's amazing is is we've got Kat Soucie, the amazing Kat see voicing all three of them, right? Uh, and differentiating that just through her acting, because we don't want her to do a different voice. She does a young voice for the when they're little girls. She does an old voice for when they're old women. But the differentiations between the three of them in any given scene. It's just inflection. In any given scene, yeah, it's all her acting. It's all her inflection. It's all about how she reads the lines as opposed to what kind of voice she puts on. Because otherwise, they all sound identical. Um, and so she did a fantastic job. Uh, And I think by the end of this, we managed to kind of pull it all together and get the idea at least across as much as we needed to in City of Stone. Uh, The idea, which I I don't even think by the end of season two is 100% clear, is that at different moments, different ones of those three are ascended. So often, Selene is ascended, and it's all about vengeance. And often Luna is Ascendant, and it's uh, about fulfilling fate, about destiny and that sort of thing. We didn't get to see much of Phoebe being Ascendant, um, where it's about grace and kindness. Um, you see moments of it, but you don't see a plot line where Phoebe's sort of Ascendant. Um, and we just didn't get to that. You know, We only had 55 episodes, so that didn't quite come through and it wasn't meant to come through in city of stone here we wanted them to be more mysterious this one was more about um luna than it was phoebe or Celine. and you get little tastes of phoebe and bigger tastes of Celine, but it's mostly about luna um but in subsequent episodes you get more of Celine. we never really get very much of phoebe being ascendant and so that becomes something i'd still like to get to eventually uh, is showing Phoebe ascendant in that role. But there's a lot of really cool stuff here showing them as the little girls. Uh, you know, I, I always wonder how fans reacted the first time they saw it. Like before those little girls disappear from the bank, what did you make of them? When Brendan and Margo are freaking out over the terrace before the gargoyles have even arrived, you know, uh, The weird sisters are going, oh, don't worry, you know, um, it's not your fate to die today or something like that. Um, And, you know, was that strange even before the gargoyles showed up, or did the strangeness not come in to play until the girls started
2: talking to the gargoyles and then disappeared? I remember raising an eyebrow and thinking, okay, those girls are creepy looking.
0: Yeah, and they, (laughs) they just, they really are creepy looking as the little kids, too, like, um, and then, of course, they have that that spooky kind of little kid voice to go with them, and it was just, yeah, they. I think they stuck out as something. Something's off here. Uh, and then they completely had my attention when they disappeared.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and then
0: you see them sort of dressed as fashion models. We name
1: them later in the episode, and then you even see them in one of the flashback sequences entering as serving wenches. Um, in uh, Edinburgh Castle. Um, but you'll see more of them in the parts two, three, and four,
2: obviously. Before part one was even over, I was intrigued. I'll talk more about that when we get to part four, but um I was I was intrigued before this episode was even over, that I remember. And then we flash back to nine ninety four Scotland and you know, first you would think that going from Walt Disney Television Japan's animation to I forget the name of the studios uh, Studio, but okay. their animation, Coco, it wasn't as jarring, and it never quite is as you almost expected to be. I mean, yeah, it would have been nice if Walt Disney Japan did this, but I feel Coco has a certain dark and grittiness to their visuals that really helps with the mood of this particular story.
0: I just wish they would have gotten the right model for Demona.
2: Yes.
0: yes. Scenes. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, that
1: that became like, again a big issue for us, which is that. In general, uh, Coco was without a doubt uh, of the subcontractor studios that we used in season two. Coco was the strongest by far, and they did great work on this. The fight scene, for example, which will, uh, between the Hunter and Finlake and Macbeth and Gruach and Damona is fantastic. It's Real really fantastic. great. I mean, it's yeah. fa- the boarding is fantastic, and I want to give a shout out uh, when we talk about it to the board artists on this because it's like a killer who's who a great action board artist but um but the animation lives up to the board you know oftentimes you get great boards and the animation sort of lets it down um this time the animation does great but they did have one big problem they could not keep the two demona models straight and when to use which one and the place, obviously, where it's going to be most jarring is here when you're literally putting it up against this sort of gorgeous um, season one uh, Walt Disney television animation, Japan animation. When you're putting those things side by side, back to back, etc. And, you know, it's not just that you're going from one studio to another, but they're using the wrong Demona model at points, at various points. And that just makes you go, oh, my God, come on, guys. Um, and you know, so we sent stuff back for retakes where we could, but you can't send everything back. There's no time for that. So we're certain places where you go, okay, that could just look like she's stressed. And we know we're kidding ourselves. I mean, Frank and I, you know, it's like, can we live with that? Yeah, I think we can live with that one. Um, what that means is that the stuff that we did get fixed, was even worse um where the models were where you know in essence if you lean on a model any given individual artist might hit it dead on might make her look a little younger might make her look a little older Um, so if you're using an older model someone might interpret that and push her even older than we wanted her to look or someone might accidentally split the difference and then you're not getting the effect of it. But when we're not supposed to be using the older model and they just put the wrong model down on their table to refer to, it causes all these sorts of problems. Again, we fixed what we could and we lived with what we couldn't, but we made choices. So what you're seeing here is, you know, uh, from our production reality, sort of the best that we could do and you know, obviously I wish it were better. And obviously again, because it's up against this great animation from season one, um, you know, we're literally from one scene to the next in 994 going from a season one scene of Goliath and Simona, you know, having their little angel of the night moment, right. You and I are one now and forever um, to him flying off and, then she turns to the captain. When she turns to the captain, um, that's new animation. And some of those scenes are fine. And some of them, uh, eh, not so much because they've used the wrong model. Um, but it was stuff that we either fixed it or we lived with it. And so the stuff now that looks the most off was actually the mid range stuff, right? Cause so the really egregious stuff we fixed. um, But the mid-range stuff, we had to sort of let go. Um, And, yeah, it drives me crazy. But, again, we had a complicated show, and, you know, what's happening is, is you're sending stuff in English to Japan. And then Japan is sending, you know, is translating into Japanese, and then they're translating it into Korean and sending it to Korea. So there's a lot, I mean, that's a big game of telephone, Right. There's a lot of opportunity for confusion, and um, and so we got confusion. <laughs> Plenty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the... we fixed what we could.
2: And in the end, the finished product was well. I'm biased toward this, towards this. I love City of. But <laughs> let's talk about well, let's talk about some visuals that worked really well. The Tears on Stone sequences—they are gorgeous, both of them. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. There was actually a moment when I. Thought we should change the title of this episode, uh, this four-parter to, uh, to "Tears of Stone," and it didn't quite work. But I actually was like that. that those two moments—the um, one where Demona sort of squeezes out a tear just before she turns to stone, and so the the tear sort of rolls down her cheek—and then when she sort of kisses Goliath's stone body goodbye, and her tear falls on him. And then it runs down his cheek as if it were his tear. Those are just great moments. And I remember at some point someone said, do you really want both of these in there? And I'm like, yeah, because they're both great. And they're like, yeah, but isn't it just the same thing? You're doing it twice. I'm like, yeah, it's a variation on a thing. It's fine. But I didn't really care about that. I was just, <laughs> just like, they're both great moments. Leave it alone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> nice. And let's be honest also, this entire sequence is extremely character-defining for, for Demona. She is willing to trust all their lives, the captains, accept her. She she has that tear moment down there, and then she deludes herself into thinking worked. By
1: the way, worked. that, I always thought, where she hides is brilliant. Like, I didn't come up with that. I don't remember who did. But, I mean, I know it wasn't me. But uh, that notion, I think my idea is she just flies off into the forest somewhere, you know, or something. But whoever idea it was for her to fly down to the foot of the cliff, where the the castle is. Yeah, yeah, I thought, Mm -hmm. ah, that's so smart. Um, And it just, it made everything so elegant, she's got to climb back up. Um, and it shows us the foot of the cliff, which we hadn't really seen. I mean, you'd sort of seen it from a distance, but it was just like, okay, all that weight above her, everything about that symbolically and otherwise, I just love it to death. It's just so cool. So I was, I was really thrilled with whoever, uh, uh came up with that. And, and every time I saw it last night, you know, I was just like, oh yeah, that's so great. Um,
2: Beautiful. Great moment. So many great moments here. And um, I just love watching her go through her thought processes here. Just like with Eye the Beholder, or we saw Xantos run through plans A, B, and C to a speed run. We're watching a speed run of how she just makes excuses and lies to herself. And that's before she gets back and sees Goliath turned to stone, Lead into one of the character-defining moments for that line. Jen? <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> what, what have they done? Oh, yeah, what have I done? What have they done? Yeah. 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 We're...
1: Right, and that was obviously, you know, something that for Michael and I, probably uh, for Frank, bring and Lydia as well, I know Michael and I discussed it. Um, that's the key thing, you know. There's a piece of her that knows this is on me. <laughs> but she yeah, doesn't no want to carry that. Way. She, she can live with that. Yeah, she can't go on. She can't function if she acknowledges that. She cannot carry that weight. So she flips a switch, and you can see it happen. And what have, I, what have they done? And um, it's a great moment. It goes from mourning to
0: anger, like, as she flips it.
2: love it. Right.
1: And, of course, Marina Seardes. I mean, you know, just, she gets it, she nails it, uh, you know, because, honestly, that's a tough line to read. Because it's so on the head, on some level, you know, that... I see that as being a really tough acting job um, to make it feel organic and not make it feel like, okay, audience, we're now going to tip you off as to what's going on in our head, right? Because that's exactly what we're doing. But how do we make it play real? Well, the answer is you cast Marina Sirtis. (laughs) That's how you do it. (laughs) Easy. You know, you just, uh, you know, you just get someone who's so good and who gets the character and who, and I, you know, I should also, it's hard for me, but I should also give some credit to Jamie Thomason. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, Jamie's direction, Marina's acting this, you know, it, it's a phenomenal combination. Um, uh, you know, Michael and I, um, Again, abetted by Lydia and Bryn and Frank, um, come up with these things. But it's but you know we, we're still reliant on people to execute those things and make them play organically and not just as like, okay, audience, we're going to signal you now. Um, and again, that is what we're doing. I mean, you you got it yourselves. You guys brought this up, but but you don't get taken out of the moment by going ooh. What a horrible line! Um, you are brought into the moment because it's such a great line. Well, the reason it's a great line, frankly, isn't the writing; it's the performance. Um, because a line read badly is go- that line could easily be read badly and just make you just you know go yuck. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, not
2: from Marina. She makes it work. She really does. And this is something that I have to ask. I think the question is fairly obvious myself, but, I mean, the answer to the question is fairly obvious myself, but so many people people ask it that I feel we should cover it. Why do you think Demona did not go down and take the eggs from Catherine, the Magus and Tom?
1: I don't think, you know, to do that, she'd have to there'd have to be explanations. I think she'd have to take responsibility for these eggs. I think it was too overwhelming. I don't think she could face it. Um, I think that, you know, there's a part of her that knows she just got her entire clan killed and that she's not worthy of these eggs. She's not able to function and raise them. Um, I don't, it just becomes uh, that one leap down from the top of the castle to the bottom where they're loading that cart. That's a bridge too far, you know? That's a leap she can't make it at, at that stage. I feel she like is capable of doing it.
0: It's a point where it's a mirror of Goliath doing the same thing when he entrusts them to take care of the eggs in the first place. Like it, yeah. I, there's I, I all mean, I, this I loss, and true. everything's so overwhelming that it's it's just no, just no.
1: I think that's very true. I mean, Goliath, uh, almost more than Demona, sort of uh, you know dumps his responsibilities on others uh, in that moment. I'm not saying generally, but in that moment when Gar- when Goliath asks uh, Catherine to take care of the eggs. Um, he is, uh, choosing to drop the ball, so to speak. You know, he is, uh, full of grief and unable to face, um, that. And he gives up on his responsibilities. And if Goliath is doing that, and you know, he's got guilt too, because he was in charge of the clan. So from his point of view, he's the one who screwed up in that moment, you know, he can get mad at Hakon all he wants, but the fact of the matter is is that from his point of view, I was in charge and I blew it big time. And so he's got all this guilt, but that's his guilt is is puny in comparison to Demona's guilt. Now the difference is Demona refuses to feel that guilt, or tries very hard not to at least. But it's the same basic idea. She can't face it. It's too much. Um, and so she watches them take the eggs away and that includes, you know, know, all those eggs are raised by the clan, but she's very conscious of the fact that she laid one of those eggs herself and that that egg is the child of herself and Goliath and who she's lost. Um, and she still can't bring herself to face it.
2: Too much. It's just such a gorgeous sequence, and uh, this comparison might be weird, but there've been times when I've described Demona to people who don't know the show, and I picked a much larger figure in pop culture, and I've, uh, in a sense, I've often almost compared it to a reverse of. Peter Parker, because Peter Parker, in essence, gets Uncle Ben killed, but whereas Peter Parker internalizes all the guilt, takes all the responsibility, sometimes a little bit too much responsibility, she completely externalizes it, blames everybody else.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's a fantastic moment that we were able to do here, which we couldn't do in Awakening. Um, Now, from an S&P standpoint, we couldn't really let you get to know any of the gargoyles who are about to be massacred in the massacre, right? Um, that would become too harsh for our audience, um, or at least for some of our audience. You know, If we introduced you to three or four more gargoyles at the beginning who got smashed up, um, that would be extremely problematic for our s executive and for Disney, right? But now we could do it. We're still sort of cheating a little, but you see Othello and Desdemona, right? And there's a moment when it looks like Desdemona is going to say, look, uh, I made this deal with the captain and now I'm getting nervous that maybe it won't work out. Maybe we should all get... Go-. And she chickens out, Right. She doesn't want to have to admit to her complicity. So she chickens out. She goes to hide, but she doesn't tell anybody else. Well, then she comes back. And what does she find on the floor of the castle? She finds the fellow's face.
2: Mm-hmm. Which know, this is chunk really of dark and
0: really creepy.
2: <laughs> and you can see Desdemona's head nearby. Right. And he, and.
1: Arm fragments and leg fragments, and the idea was okay. The pieces of Desdemona and Iago and Othello, which we now know make up Coldstone, let's show these big chunks scattered about. I, you know, I think we were semi-successful with that. Um, but again, the basic idea is okay. Now we know these people. She went and tried to tell them, and now we're seeing them in pieces. And that level of horror, we couldn't do in episode one, right? But here in episode nine of season two, because from our S&P executive standpoint, we're pointing out to Adrian, hey, but, you know, the audience already knows that Coldstone Stone survives in a weird way and that does Desdemona survives in a weird way. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, yeah, you can do it. Um, and so we were able to get away with more horror here than we'd been able to do um, way back at the beginning of the show.
2: Oh, Adrian was very cooperative on this episode. There's the scarring of Gil gain in the next scene and Later, and a little bit further down, Demona bringing the mace down on those guards. Right, but that's off screen. I mean, you don't see her.
1: <laughs> I remember, you know, uh, I mean, I think the result
2: is obvious,
1: but you don't actually see it. So that's how we got away with that one.
0: <laughs> but now now we're to, to Gilcombe game, which I love the... Like, how he gets bent on revenge, like, she gets bent on revenge, and she created this thing that wants to get revenge on her. And again, like... Right, I, which is
1: one of the themes of the whole four-parter, is that yeah. revenge only, you know, revenge never stops. Revenge is antithesis, the fucker's game, right? You know, you take vengeance, well, then I have to take vengeance. And then you'll take vengeance again, and, and it doesn't end. It never ends. Until someone finally says, okay, enough." I am finally going to turn the other cheek, but yeah, she creates this tremendous problem for her, uh, and then blames it on humans. You know, <laughs> that'll teach <laughs> you humans not to betray us. Like this kid, like in this, this kid, this, yeah, betrayed farmhouse. <laughs> you know, had anything to do with that. But you know, if you're going to group everyone who's a human together in one group, you know, again, it's a. Uh, Not too subtle metaphor for racism in general. If you're going to say everyone is monolithically part of this same group and mindset, you know, like Kanye West seems to be intent on spending his days right now, um, then, you know, bad things are going to happen and they're going to keep happening.
2: Returning to the present, um, this is a great scene. There's a couple of flaws in the scene. They've been actually only really one flaw. In the scene that's been pointed out. Um, one minute of life from each person that sees and hears a spell. I think someone did the math later, and eight million people in New York City, maybe 50 years each. I don't know. I mean, but I'm bad at math myself. So, uh, but one of the things that strike that really sticks out at me is this is one of the first examples of Xanatos' hubris. He's a brilliant guy, one of the smartest characters in the show, and thankfully nothing ever deplatforms him from that, but he put Demona on TV with a magic spell without having it looked at, translated. But it's clear he doesn't trust her either. No, he doesn't, but... He
0: does not trust her on top of it, but he didn't, yeah, he didn't do his homework.
2: No. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I
1: mean... He's a guy who takes big swings. He always has been. But yeah, this time maybe he should have done more well, more, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but I just lo- I love her a because to me it's a very convincing lie. It's like, how have you stayed alive all this time? Well, because I've been stealing little bits of time from people using this spell. Well, that's interesting. But if we could only do it on a big scale, you know, um that would be huge. And then we could share it. Uh, and it does sort of indicate his interest in immortality. You know, the one flaw to all his plans is that I'm going to get old and die. You know, no matter what I do, I'm going to get old and die. It doesn't matter how successful I am. Well, if I can get past that, the whole dying bit, then I'm got it made. Right. And that, honestly, Xanatos' desire for immortality comes right from me, me. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) um, because that's what I want. I want immortality. I just want it in a different way than he does. He wants it, I guess, in a literal sense, and I'm just hoping I make some good cartoons that people remember after I'm dead. But that notion uh, is, is that his desire for this one thing is so intensive that it overrides his wisdom. And still he's semi-cautious, just not nearly cautious enough. I also think it's really interesting that, you know, he tells Fox not to watch the broadcast, right? Um, But doesn't tell her why. Like doesn't reveal the why of it so that she would know not to watch it. So he's like, don't watch it. And she's like, okay, well, I'm curious. I'm just going to watch for a little bit, right? Which, of course, nearly causes disaster. She turns to stone in midair while they're in a helicopter, but she's flying. And uh, But I think it's interesting that he, did, you know, obviously if he had explained the why of it, she would have known not to watch. And I wonder, let's say Demona hadn't been lying. And out of it, Xanatos got, you know 50 more years of life than he would have had and Fox lost a minute of her life well we know more about Fox now than we did but at that moment what given what we knew about Fox if down the road he's still immortal and she's dying you wonder what he would give for that one minute to be able to give her back even that one minute right um, but he's not thinking that way. He's not trained to think that way. Too much self-interest, even with the woman he loves, right? Mhm. hmm um, I mean, he tells her not to watch it, but he doesn't tell her why. I think if the whole thing had worked from his point of view, yeah, if this works and I become immortal, then yeah, we'll do it again and I'll give it to Foxes, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah. no, we can do this every three or four years. People would freak out, but no big deal. Um, you know, that's assuming Demona is telling the truth,
2: which, of course, she's totally not in any way, shape, or form. Hey, <laughs> um, in, hey in 10 years, they could put her on YouTube. <laughs> right, exactly. That's Latin for you. Can't trust anyone speaking Latin
1: during a light show. Nope.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we get the, the you're the tricky one line
2: as she right. ties
0: up Owen
2: with an iron cable. Right.
1: I mean, you know, at this point, this is after, after the mirror. So by this time we knew that Owen was uh puck and vice versa. Um, so we wanted again to play fair with the audience, but not too fair. <laughs> so um, that becomes a little hint uh, to Owen's true nature, but not so big a hint that anyone, frankly, I mean, In hindsight, it's really obvious, right? When you know Owen is Puck and you hear her say that line, it's like, oh, my God, how did I miss this the first time? through?" Well, you missed it because you're just like, oh, you're tricky. You're a tricky guy. I got to be careful with you. There's not enough there. But we love that because it made us feel like uh, once the Owen reveal comes, which it won't for many episodes, right, Um, again, the response becomes not – Oh, come on. But, oh, of course. Right? Yeah. Um, And that's the fun of it. Now, we completely cheat in that scene. Um, She doesn't, like, tape his eyeballs open or anything like that. Somehow, the magic she's doing doesn't just blow him back. It puts him in some kind of trance, which it does to nobody else on the show. When Elisa watches (laughs) that on tape, you know, she's watching Casablanca and then Casablanca sort of cuts out and, uh, um, and Damona's broadcast starts, at least it doesn't fall into a trance. She starts flipping channels and going, Hey, it's on every channel. This can't be good. I better go talk to the gargoyles. And she leaves. She's now seen the whole, you know, 10 second clip by that time, but she leaves. She's not in trance. She doesn't fall over but Owen does and he's somehow entranced and we just cheated that. And I was very aware that we were cheating and I'm sure that we all discussed it and just said, Ugh, it's too complicated. Otherwise. <laughs> what You know, what are we going to do? Pull out some <laughs> duct tape and have her tape the eyes. It's just, it's just this huge, just let it go. It's magic. Okay. It's magic, Greg, shut up. It's magic. And <laughs> on the one hand, I think, Uh, it it makes me a little crazy, just like a lot of things do rewatching the show. But on the other hand, I feel, I feel it. I mean, it's just sort of like any other thing that we would have done would have been such a stage weight or so difficult to get the idea across when we had so many other ideas to get across. Um, it would have been just not worth it. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, totally. (laughs) <laughs> not worth it So it's like, it's a cheat, let it go Let it go, Greg, let it go <laughs> It's been 27 years, let it go
2: Let's talk about that second flashback And don't worry, I'm not going to play this, the song There and the <laughs> At all, So, but let's talk about the second flashback um, It's uh, About 25 years later, 26 years Later, and um, Demona is obviously aged We see she's leading a new clan of gargoyles And For some of the people who haven't been reading, ask Greg for years, where did these gargoyles come from? Because I've seen people sometimes on Reddit or elsewhere speculate, oh, she must have found the eggs or what, something.
1: No, I mean, the idea is that, uh, you know, there were other clans of gargoyles around uh, Scotland, including um, a group of gargoyles who, in essence, originated with the Wyvern clan. But, you know, the idea that is that at some point an area, um, if a clan is healthy, you know, becomes too populous. Uh, It it can't uh, in essence feed too many gargoyles. Um, So, you know, if a clan gets big enough, it splits. And a group of Uh, gargoyles are sent off to start a new clan somewhere else. So some of those gargoyles, especially the ones that might look slightly familiar from early episodes, aren't survivors of the massacre. They're relatives of survivors of the massacre. So she went and gathered some gargoyles from other clans because all gargoyles were under attack in those days. And so she found survivors from a variety of clans, including the, in essence, the spin-off clan from Wyvern, And she sort of gathered them under her iron fist, so to speak. Um, And in the comics, the SLG comics, we have since established that she also kept them in small groups, cells in essence, you know, small group here, small group there, a small group, another place. So that um, if one group of gargoyles was caught, the whole Scottish gargoyle population wasn't decimated in one fell blow. You know, um, uh, we don't make that clear here, but it's just a handful here that we see. And later in this four parter, you'll see she has many more gargoyles. It's just that she doesn't keep them all in one place. Um, because that's too dangerous in essence for them all to be in one location. And, um, so that's where they come from, this this group there. Um, various survivors of other clans from around Scotland.
2: And then we meet at Casamore, Findlay, Gruach, Young Macbeth, and Bodie. And oh, we're going to have fun talking about Bodie.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael and Lydia and Bryn just did a fantastic job of characterizing um, these four. And then, of course, you had John Davies playing Findlay. Macbeth's father. You have Jeff Bennett playing young Macbeth. You have Ed Gilbert playing Bodie. And you have uh, Emma Sams doing a great job in her first voice acting gig um, doing uh, young Gruck, Bodie's daughter. Um, and Emma was amazing to watch across these four episodes because She'd never done it before, and it, it was it was kind of um, tough for her, I think, in the first episode. Um, and then we just watched her, Jamie and I, watched her just sort of bloom as a voice actress across these four episodes. Now, she, she's a very talented actress, period, but she'd never done voice acting before, and and so by the time we got to the fourth episode, she is so in command of these skills. It, it was incredible. Um, she was fantastic, but she was great for the little bit that Grok had here. Um, but I think, uh, again, Michael and Brynn and Lydia just did a terrific job at characterizing these four characters with very little, very economically, in the, you know, little amount of screen time you had. You really got a sense of each of the four. Um, and that was just a great deal of fun. And, and like I said, I promised I wanted to do this. Um, the board artists on this episode, and I, I, no longer remember who did what sequence. So I'm going to just name all the board artists cause they're, they are all, uh, were great people on our show. Doug Murphy, Deborah Pugh, Brad Rader, Patrick Archibald, Chris Tarkowski, David Simon. This, this is again, like a who's who of great action board artists of that era Um, and uh, totally um, did a phenomenal job on the episode as a whole. But this particular sequence, and again, I don't remember which of these board artists worked on this sequence. And Frank directed it, so he may have done a little bit himself too. But I just thought this sequence is so well done all the way from top to bottom, from the social scene at the beginning to the big fight and the depth of Finlay and, Finlay and everything. The board work is just phenomenal.
2: I believe the sequence was Brad Rader. He had it up on his website for a while. I think he still does. I will link to it in the show notes below. Oh, great. On the yeah, website Brad anyway.
1: is was a fantastic, fantastic board artist, and did great work for us on, on Gargoyle. So that doesn't surprise me at all.
2: We need to talk about the hunter. We this is a fantastic intro that is slowly built up, and he arrives in such a dramatic fashion. That mask is so cool, and it's so terrifying at the same time.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, I love the hunter mask. Uh, We've done some fun things with it over the years, through across both episodes and animation, um, and uh, issues of comic books. Uh, the SLG book. Um, but again, the idea of the uh, three red claw marks across a black background, that that I'm pretty sure was my idea, I think. And uh, I just thought that image would be really stark and impressive and up with uh, Gilgum game scars and uh, but just always look incredible. The red on black, of course, is a really great you know, scary color scheme. <laughs> Blood against black in essence, you know, um, always and then I liked how we did variations on it so that the mask that Gilcom game wears in which Duncan later down the road will get and after him Canmore. That's a pretty basic thing that you can believe, even though it's a superhero universe, that someone in the tenth century could create that mask. It's got eye holes, right? You know, um you can It's just, you know, in essence, cloth that you are putting over your head and you cut eye holes in it and you can look through it. But then you get to the 20th century with Macbeth and he's wearing a version that uh, has no eye holes. So it's even a little bit more chilling. And again, the idea is that with modern technology, he's able to make it look like, you know... um, There's no eye holes there. In fact, there's some way that he's seeing through that. But uh, but advanced semi-science fiction technology of the late 20th century (laughs) um, allows him to do it without the appearance of there being um, any eye holes. And, of course, also, the idea was some of our audience wouldn't know who the modern-day hunter was. Some of them would immediately get from context, oh, that's Macbeth. But for those people, there was still a mystery. Like for the people who didn't know who it was, the mystery is, well, who's the hunter now in the 20th century? But for those people who got that it was Macbeth, there's still a mystery. The hunter killed Macbeth's dad. Why on earth would he put that mask on? That notion is chilling, that you would put on the mask of the guy who killed your father. Why would you do that What would drive you to that? And so there was still a mystery there. So I, you know, I remember there was a conversation with Frank and Michael and I about, well, but, you know, what are we going to do? Macbeth's costume is pretty significant. We're going to put him later in his airship. People are going to get the distance. I'm like, it's okay if they get it. Um, Because that only creates a second mystery, which is in some ways even more fascinating. Why? So for people who don't catch on the mysteries who, but for people who do, there's still a mystery. It's why.
2: And we get so much characterization for um, Gruach, Young Macbeth, and even Bodie during this scene. I love the Young Macbeth, despite being amateur, not so being an amateur, he's still not afraid to stand up to this hunter, confront his father, and this hunter is scary even to the audience. Just that scene of him chopping cutting through the plate with his sword was enough to make... was more than enough on top of everything else. And the way he just Dude, strikes that... Whole at...
0: fight, like, just like, he just came at him and it just was like, whoa, this guy.
2: Yeah. I Set up really mean, well. And, yeah, and Guruk uh, runs the, to his aid.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and I think that uh, came from Michael, Bryn, or Lydia, or some combination of the three of them, Guruk running to his aid. Uh, and... It was terrific, you know, what I mean and I, I think Finlay's terrific. I mean he grabs up a a serving dish, right? You know <laughs> and uses it as a shield. He's completely unarmed when the hunter attacks. So he <laughs> makes to, do for a good long time.
0: Yeah. Um bites him and off then with you the, get this great,
1: Right. And then you get this great moment where Macbeth takes those two swords off the wall. And he's like, father, here, and he throws one. And you're like, oh, good, this will – and then it just gets knocked off
2: the side of the (laughs) – Yes. Okay, talking about
0: the the boarding again, like one of the things that, like, hit me is when the serving tray goes flying off the side of the castle. Like, that shot, (laughs) which is just like, you know, you're just showing that he's been disarmed. But the serving tray, like, flies off and it's just – an awesome scene. And I just like really strikes me every time I see it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it also sets up, Oh, by the way, this is a cliff. You know, it sets up the vertical danger of the thing because you've just seen where things can go down, very far down, down into the darkness where we can't even see them anymore. That's how high up we are. Um, so all these things, again, this is a tremendously, both in terms of the writing and the boarding, a tremendously economic way to get all these ideas across. Again, I take no credit for that. You know, I mean, that was done on the writing side by Michael Lydian Brin on the boarding side by Brad Rader, Frank and whoever else might've helped out. Um, but all of that is this tremendously economic way because you only have so much screen time to get these ideas across of who these five people are, what their qualifications are, what they're capable of, and then six when Demona answers, right? But, yeah, you know, you've got the moment where the the dish, you know, the serving platter goes over the edge, and then the moment where the have is throwing the sword. And, again, the trope is, ah, dad will catch the sword, and now we've got this guy, right? No. <laughs> that sword passed away from dad. <laughs> and dad's in worse shape now than he was. And you almost get this moment where Macbeth's is like, oh, fuck. Uh, you know? <laughs> I screwed that one up. And so, you know, he can't risk throwing the second sword to his dad. So, you know, young Macbeth has to take this guy on his own. And dad jumps in and pays the price for saving his son. Um, You know, and there's this great scene of Macbeth trying to wrestle with, you know, trying to open, uh, while Finlay is holding the hunter, right, from behind, Macbeth is literally trying to de-grippify the hunter's grip on his own, on the hunter's sword, right? Um, But before he can do that, the hunter turns the tables and then lays gone, just gone. And then Demona gets. It. And then you have, I think, one of my favorite Demona moments from the entire series, which is she's, you know, Macbeth has been thrown over. Gurak tries to pull Macbeth back, but he's so heavy and she, you know, isn't exactly a superhero that he's actually pulling her over and she's not letting go. Right. When she starts to get pulled over, she could let go and save herself. But she's not letting go. And they are both about to go over. And Demona is presented with a choice. She can take her vengeance on this guy who's been killing gargoyles. You know, we've established that throughout the episode. He's been killing gargoyles right and left. Or she can save these two young lovers. And what does she do? She saves them. He gets away. Hunter, I mean. And she is so pissed at herself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> she is furious at herself. And she, you know, does her cougar growl, right? You know? Um, and then she just does a, a great Marina Sears, Ugh! you know, frustration, grumble, because I mean, obviously they got in her way in the sense that if they hadn't been there, she could have just killed the hunter, right? Um, But instead, uh, she saved them. And it becomes this moment where there's a piece of Demona, even in 1020, you know, which, as you pointed out, is 26 years after the massacre at Wyvern. After all the hardship she's been through, there's a piece of Demona when she sees these two kids. They're human, but there's got to be a part of her that sees herself in Goliath. Yeah. She couldn't save Goliath, again, from her point of view. He's still stoned back at Wimmer. What this girl is doing is throwing her life away to save this kid. So she saves them both. There's a part of her that still wants to be that savior. Then, of course, she's just furious at herself that she did it. <laughs> <laughs> this, is what, this is why I love it. You know, that she is so conflicted and so complicated. That's why I think she's so interesting, is that on the one hand, she can do this great thing and then be mad about it. Um, because it doesn't suit... Mind and that moment that of like, oh she did the right thing
0: that. and then yeah, no, she's she is mad that she did the right thing.
2: Exactly. Love it. And I love how fast young Macbeth and Gruck clearly made a connection with one another to the point where she's willing to risk her life and die to help save Emma. Uh, Bodie, you did a real too good a job when you suggested that they play chess with one another. Yeah,
1: yeah. That, I mean, that was one hell of a I mean, game of chess. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, just the moment where their hands touch accidentally, reaching for a piece, and then they both blush, and then Bodhi, who wanted them together because he's looking, you know, hey, I got a marriageable-aged daughter, you got a marriageable-aged son. She's attractive. He's a good guy. He's cousin to the king. Hey, this could be a good match politically. I like this match until they seem to really be into each other. At which point, Bodhi's like, "Okay, I'm taking her away now." He's afraid that it'll go too far. <laughs> Gotta keep that girl a virgin, right? You know, we all know that, right?
0: <laughs>
1: um, and uh, I'm all ah. for them marrying. But no hanky panky beforehand. This is the 10th century, young man. Um, <laughs> to which Finlay just laughs. Like, he knows exactly what Bodie's thinking. And thinks it's hilarious. Um... <laughs> So uh, Finlay's a little more modern than Bodhi, or maybe it's just that like the father of the son, not the father of the daughter. So maybe that's why, I don't know. But, um, but uh, yeah, that's a great scene too. And then, yeah, you know, we also sort of established, you know, they are up on the balcony, they see looking, they hear the commotion, they come out to the balcony, they look down and they see... Finlay and Macbeth fighting for their lives against this evil hunter who everyone's heard of, right? And Grex running down the stairs and and dad, Bodie is going, don't run down the stairs, stay up here, it isn't safe. And he doesn't go down, even after his daughter goes down. It's not like his daughter goes down and then he goes, ah, fuck, I guess I have to go down now. He goes, ah, fuck. it. Well, I better stay up here. <laughs> yeah. I got a better view from up here. You know, he does not run to protect his daughter. He just gets really upset that she is heading down there and putting herself in danger. But he stays up top. And uh, Bodhi became a character that, on the one hand, as this four-parter progresses and then into the SLG comic, um, I simultaneously... um, got had more and more contempt for um, and yet at the same time became more and more fond of him in his flaws and um, and then in the comics I tried to sort of give you Bodhi's backstory so that you begin to understand a little more about why he is the way he
2: is in the next scene we meet Prince Duncan for the first time, a very different character than the Duncan we met in Shakespeare's play. Right. So, again, um,
1: one of the things that happened when we were working on uh, City of Stone, also in the Avalon three-parter that we'll get to down the road, um, is uh, I had a couple people um, doing research for us, Um, I think we talked about this earlier a little bit. Um, When we started out doing gargoyles with the 10th century stuff and Vikings attacking this castle in Scotland, and maybe Michael knew more about it than I did. I don't know. But I I didn't know that Vikings attacked Western Scotland. I had no idea. Michael was just like, let's have the Vikings. I'm like, oh, cool. Vikings are cool. That's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Then after the fact, in doing some research, we found out, oh, Vikings were attacking the west coast of Scotland in that era, exactly that era. Oh, well, we, by accident, were historically accurate. Now that we've found that out, let's try and stay as historically accurate as possible. Anything that we know from history is true. We're going to try and lock that in. And then weave our gargoyles and our fictional characters in with that. So we had a couple people. One was um, my assistant at the time, Monique Beatty, who now is one of the two production heads at uh, DreamWorks TV Animation. Um, And who started as my assistant at Walt Disney TV Animation back then. And then when I moved over to produce in season two, she moved over. And I think her title was script coordinator. But really, she she didn't she did that, but she did way more than that. And um, and one of the things she did was do a lot of research on Scottish history. And then the other person who did Scottish research for us uh, was a woman named Tuppence McIntyre, uh, who, who was not in the industry at all. She uh, was uh, a, a deputy district attorney for Los Angeles County, um, but she's. She has Scottish heritage herself, and, it, and that and Scottish history interests her. So she also did research for us. And so between the two of them, we found out more of the true story of, of this era, including the true story of Macbeth. And it's very different than both what Shakespeare wrote and what Holmes had, which was Shakespeare's primary source for the play Macbeth. Um, it's very different from what he wrote. And Macbeth was actually king which we'll see down the road, uh, episode three or four, I can't remember now, but, uh, you know, for 17 years of tremendous prosperity, um, which is very different from what you see in Shakespeare's Macbeth. And Duncan was not this great old guy that everybody loved. Duncan, first off, was more Macbeth's contemporary. He was a little older than Macbeth, but not a lot older. Um, You know, they were within, uh, you know, five or ten years of each other Um, and he was considered a pretty awful king and uh, so we had this whole thing where it's like oh this story is great you gotta use this stuff and then we still weave Shakespearean elements into it including the weird sisters obviously Uh, and obviously we also weaved our gargoyles into it Devota specifically Um, but we tried to stick as close to the history as we could. Some of these people who really existed, including Finlay and Gilcom Gain and Macbeth and Gruach and uh, you know, all these characters, they really existed. Now they didn't necessarily, you know, their years of death are usually very clear (laughs) because they usually died in battle. Um, but their year of birth is not always particularly clear. So they would, You know, history books, in essence, give you a range. They were born sometime between this year and this year. So I would sit down and do the math and pick a year that seemed to work for our story for their birth so that we could figure out their ages at any given point in our timeline. But I would always put that birth year within the range that history gave us. So, again, as much as possible, we wanted to be accurate to the history um, and then weave our fantasy and our cartoon stuff into it um but not throw away any of the true history because the true history was so great and that just made it a lot of fun for us and i think it made for some good stuff for the audience
2: and i don't think it's been a story that's been told elsewhere to this day at least nowhere that i've seen uh, yeah, I haven't seen it anywhere else. But the irony of that scene where we first meet Duncan and then find out that he sent the Hunter and had the Hunter's Gilcom gain is that Finlay, in the previous scene pl- was pledging his loyalty to the Crown. They were, I mean, he and Macbeth had no ambitions to challenge Duncan, and yet here's Duncan ordering assassinations.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we wanted that irony. We wanted to, like, you know, both Bodie and Finlay are sitting there talking about Duncan and going, yeah, that kid's kind of creepy. I don't really love the idea of him being king, but you know what? He's the king's son, Prince Duncan. He's going to be king, and he has my loyalty. And Finlay says states that very clearly. But Duncan, yeah. Uh, that's the irony, is he, he uh, just like Demona creates her own hell, Duncan, without knowing him, has just created his own hell, because he has a, had this guy assassinated who would have been loyal to him. Not necessarily happy about it, but loyal to him. And uh, instead, he creates a, a vengeance machine called Macbeth not going to happen for decades, but down the road, he's creating the source of his own demise, which isn't um, And he's creating a problem for himself with Gilcombe Game, who knows too much. Now, that scene where Gilcombe Game enters, that scene was, it was and is still kind of a disappointment for me, because what we wanted to show was that Duncan was there, and you see the hunter enter, so you think Duncan is going to be his next victim. Oh, yeah, that would have been nice. And then Duncan turns around, and it's like, oh, I'm glad you're here, Hunter. Oh, you can take the mask off. I already know you're going come game. You know, that kind of thing. Um, but I wanted to have tension in that scene for just a couple seconds where you think, oh, he's gone to kill Finley. Now he's going to go kill Duncan. And it doesn't come off that way at all. It just feels like he walks in, Duncan immediately addresses him. It's, oh, they're in cahoots. Which eventually, you know, is where the scene was going. It's as written. It's just that I wanted that moment first where you think Duncan's the next victim. And that doesn't come off at all. So, again, you know, you win some, you lose
2: some. That's when we didn't win. Okay, move on. (laughs) Get over it, Greg. (laughs) We'll talk about the secret identity aspects of Gil King and The Hunter in Part 2, because uh, there's plenty to talk about there. So uh, we can move back to the present, and um, one of the things that I like about how this episode ends, which is so unusual, the villains are the ones in immediate peril.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that's a testament to the show, you know, is that you know, Owen's calling Xanatos, and then he turns to stone. Oh, my God, Owen just turned to stone. Then Xanatos' chopper starts to fall. You turn around, and you see that Fox has turned to stone. And so Fox and Xanatos are in a helicopter that's about to crash, right? And, uh, and that's where the big drama is. And then you cut to the gargoyles waking up. They go indoors. And there's Elisa, and she's turned to stone. Now, Elisa's the capper. Obviously, we're more concerned about Elisa than either Owen Fox or Xanatos. But I do think it's a testament to these characters that the real drama, because Elisa's thing is is a static shock. Not shock. Shock. Static shock. She's just a statue in the clock tower. She's not under any particular threat at that moment. You know, she's surrounded by the gargoyles, and she's a statue It's a chilling sort of scene. But the real threat is the helicopter about to crash with two of our villains. And yet we care about them by this time in the series enough that we're worried about Xanatos and Fox dying. (laughs) Hell, Xanatos is half the cause of this problem. And we're still worried about those two dying. (laughs) And I think the idea is, is that once you get past Eye of the Beholder, And you see that they love each other, right? You see that Zantos is not, is a human being, almost despite himself, right? And we know that Fox loves him back. Suddenly, we care about these two, even though they're the bad guys. And I, so I love that moment. And so we have a sort of great kind of, uh, you know, boom, boom, boom thing there, where you start with Owen, which... You know, again, he's not under threat, but still, oh my God, he's turned to stone. We see that happen. Then you cut to Fox, she's stone, and the helicopter's going down with both Fox and David. And then you go to Elisa, who's frozen in stone as well. And, uh, and again, not under threat, but that is incredibly chilling to see our, our lead, one of our leads that vulnerable and in that condition. And, uh. And that makes for a great out and makes you really want to see part two. A week One later. Thing, Or yeah. I guess a day later.
2: Yeah. A day later, yes. One of the things that's worth talking about about that scene is I was looking at the memo you, you sent about this back in 94 when you were developing these episodes, and it, was, uh, and it was Derek as the pilot and not Fox.
1: We made the switch because by this time, Derek was uh, already cow. You know, obviously, uh, Fox and and David like to spend time together, so whenever she can be the pilot. And for that matter, it's very clear that David knows how to fly a helicopter. He can always do it himself if he wants. I think the idea of having a pilot is that someone else can be doing the flying, he can be doing other things. You know, he can make more use of the time. But, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if he needs a pilot, and if Fox is free and not busy, then sure. But I'm sure he's got plenty of employees like Bruno or whoever who can take over. If he needed to. I mean, even hiring Derek was really not like he needed Derek. He just wanted to use Derek and co-op Derek. Um, but that's why we made the switch, because Derek was already talented. Uh,
2: well, I think we covered most of Part 1, and anything we didn't quite cover, we're definitely going to hit up in the... Uh... Next three parts, and uh, this is a fantastic conversation. Uh, Jen, is there anything that we didn't get to that, um, you want to discuss? Or yeah.
0: we're good, we are good. That was this was a fun one to do, guys.
2: Yeah, can't oh, wait yeah. to do the next two, three. All right, I do want to th- thank our listeners for tuning in, and this is coming out in the beginning of November, and um, you know what, we're a month away from new canon stories.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> on that note, Greg, you have anything you want to plug?
1: Yeah, I, I always want to plug Young Justice Targets, which is still coming out. Uh, issues four, five, and six, depending on which method you use to uh, to uh, purchase them. And if you haven't purchased them at all, please pick up issues one, two, and three as well, which are also available. Um, but they are coming out through December. Um and then yeah, in December, I think on December eleventh I
2: wanna say. Seventh. Seventh. Right? Um, December seventh.
1: Seventh. December seventh. Uh Gargoyle is number one. It's comic book shops everywhere. Uh pre ordering it is great. It's really helpful to sort of show the support in advance. Make sure your store has ordered enough copies. Um, there are all these great covers for book, um, for every issue. And, so many covers. uh, I have, uh, yeah, so many covers. So many. I've, uh, written the first three issues and I'm halfway through writing issue four. Um, I am really loving doing this. I'm really happy, uh, with the stories in particular. I'm really excited about, uh, well, because I'm working on it now, but I'm really excited about issue four. I feel like, um, the first three issues are tell a great fun story but it also has to serve as sort of a reintroduction to old fans who may not have everything fresh in their heads and a new introduction to people who may not have seen the show before but starting with issue four i feel like we're really getting into the nitty gritty of what that first here in manhattan arc is about and
2: uh so i'm very excited about that um but that also may be because it's what I'm Morky. working on right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> but, uh, looking forward to meeting this new villain that you've teased.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really liking writing him. So uh, uh, so I guess I've revealed it to the guy.
2: Um,
0: I was but, just going to uh, say. I was gonna say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Oh, so it's not Queen Mab. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for everything. And Jen, thank you for everything as well. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And join us next time for City of Stone, Part 2.